Thank you. Uh, thank you to our worship band, our team. What a great thing it is to lead the people of God in praise and worship. Boy, they did well today, didn't they? Well, I, uh, I've been looking forward to this. I've been looking forward to preaching and teaching you the word of God from Romans chapter 14 today. This specific text. Um, Today I hope to open the book of truth and I hope to speak the truth to you in love, which is a risky thing. I once read that to speak the truth in love is to run the risk of always only speaking the truth that people love to hear. COVID-19. We've been living in this season for about a year and a half. For the past 18 months, we've been living in a difficult season. And if I had to use one word to characterize this season of COVID, I would use the word conflict. Conflict. Conflict over what's right. We've been living in a conflict over what's right with regard to health and safety protocols. Conflict over racial issues and justice. Conflict over various political ideas in conflict over the right way for followers of Jesus Christ to bear witness to the love and wisdom of God in the midst of all of our conflict. But God has given us clear direction for how we are to handle conflict or disagreements. For example, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus teaches us that if our brother or sister is in sin, we ought to go to them and show them their sin. And if they listen, we will have won them over. But if they're not persuaded, we're to come back to them with two or three others and show them their sin once more. And if at that point, we're still in disagreement or conflict over what is right in God's eyes. We are to bring them before the church. And follow the protocol one more time. And at that point, if they still have not been persuaded, we are to treat them like we would a pagan or a tax collector. So we can see that in this type of conflict, where sin is ongoing, a change in the relationship must occur. In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul tells us to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. So when we have conflict over teaching that is against sound biblical doctrine, we're told to keep away. 
Once again, a change in the nature of the relationship. But there's another type of conflict, another type of disagreement, and that's the type that we're going to be looking at this morning. That's the kind that we find in Romans chapter 14. This is the type of conflict that the church has referred to as disputable matters. Disputable matters. Now, the idea that I want you to walk away with today is very simple and powerful. I want you to leave here with this one idea. And that idea is that God wants you to be like his son more than he wants you to be right. God wants you to be like his son more than he wants you to be right. Why? Because it's possible to be right and still destroy the work of God in someone's life. So today I plan to teach you how I arrived at that conclusion from this text in Romans chapter 14. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to stand before your people and to preach your word. I acknowledge that I'm incapable of speaking the truth without your help, and so I ask that you would work through me I ask that you would help me to speak what is true in love, and I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would be able to receive this today with the help of your spirit. We ask that you would glorify yourself, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Romans chapter 14. Please stand with me now as I read the entire chapter. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. You, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister, or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. 
Instead, make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Please be seated. So there's a lot happening here in this chapter of Romans. In fact, I was able to map out six different themes present in this one chapter. And we're going to quickly cover each of those six themes. But before we move to that, let me see if I can just quickly summarize the conflict that's present in the early church that met at Rome. We have a conflict over food, drink, and holy days. Food, drink, and holy days. And what we have here is we have a church body that is made up of Jewish converts who have come to Christ and Gentile believers. This is what makes up the community that's meeting in Rome. Jewish converts and Gentile believers. Now the Jewish converts to Christ, they come from a background where they are the chosen people of God following the laws that we find in our Old Testament. This is where we get this idea of food, drink, and holy days. And the Gentile believers, they come in from a pagan background where they were under no such compulsion to obey these laws that God had put forward. Now these laws that we're referring to are a specific part of the law, the ceremonial law to be exact. We read about the ceremonial law, the dietary laws in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. We have the prohibition for certain types of food that we can eat. But what we find in these two chapters, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, is that God says, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So here it is revealed the purpose of the prohibition on this type of food that the Israelite people could and could not eat. It's an object lesson that God's putting forward. He's saying, I want you to be different. You need to be separated from the nations around you. Why? Because God is holy. You need to be unique because God is utterly unique. 
Now, these six themes that we find here in this chapter. Let's cover each of these quickly here. If you're taking notes, the first theme that we find in Romans chapter 14 is the idea of being weak in faith. The weak in faith, except the one whose faith is weak, except the one who is weak in the faith. you find this in verses 1 and 2. Our second theme, we have practical instruction for maintaining unity and peace within the body of believers. Unity and peace within the church. You'll find that in verses 3, 13, 19, and 21. The third theme, we have a reminder that we are unified in Christ. Unity in Christ. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that binds us together as brothers and sisters. It was the blood of Christ that caused the Gentile believer and the Jewish convert to Christ to be part of the family of God. Unity in Christ, verses 7 through 9. The fourth theme is that we will be judged by God and give an account to God. We will be judged by God and give an account to God. These are two different things, part of the same theme. We will all stand and be judged by the Lord, and we will stand and give an account back to him. We will speak back to him and give an account for ourselves. Find that in verses 10 through 12. The fifth theme, destroying the work of God. Verse 15 and verse 20, destroying the work of God. And the final theme of our six is liberty and the conscience. Liberty and the conscience. Verses 14, 22, and 23. Now remember, the main point today is that God wants you to be like his son more than he wants you to be right. God wants you to be like his son more than he wants you to be right because it's possible to be right and still destroy the work of God. So while we have these six themes, I believe that this is the overarching theme that encompasses everything. So now we have Paul the writer of this letter. And Paul is tasked to pastor these people through their conflict. So how does he do it? I think he does it not in the way I would do it. To my shame, to his credit. See, you have a right and a wrong. Okay, some people's thinking was right and some people's thinking was not right. And so you would think, or at least I would think, that the most efficient way for Paul to enter into this conflict, which is beginning to get nasty because there's judgment going on, there's contempt being shown, there's a breaking of relationship taking place. And so the most expedient way to enter into this would probably be to say, okay, you're right, you're wrong. Now everybody love one another. We're brothers and sisters in Christ, right? He doesn't do that, does he? Now he doesn't withhold the truth because we do see clearly that he enters in himself 
And he says that he's fully persuaded that all foods are clean. Then later he says, all foods are clean. But that's not really the impression that you leave with. Because he starts saying things like, don't treat each other with contempt. Don't judge one another. Don't look down on one another. And don't pretend that you know what's in that person's heart. Don't keep them at arm's length. Don't put a stumbling block or obstacle in your brother or sister's path. Don't destroy your brother or sister. Don't destroy the work of God. And don't proceed unless you are fully convinced in your own mind. These are the types of things that he teaches. Okay? So what he's doing is he is calling the church to something higher than just being right. He's calling them to be like Christ. I believe because God wants us to be like his son more than he wants us to be right. Now, what are these disputable matters? Let's put some cards on the table here and define some terms. Disputable matters. If we were to define define this, here's what we could say. That a disputable matter is something that we believe or adopt or something that we do not believe or don't adopt, but regardless of whether we do or don't believe or adopt it, it will not keep us from inheriting the kingdom of God. You with me? We may or may not believe it. We may or may not bring it into our life. Regardless, salvation is not dependent on it. It's not going to keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. Because we can't make the mistake of thinking that everything that is disputed is a disputable matter. There has never been a Christian doctrine or practice that has not come under fiery dispute. Therefore, not every matter that is disputed is a disputable matter. A disputable matter is a specific thing in the faith. We are talking about theologically disputable matters, okay? For example, in the letter to the Galatian church, the book of Galatians, Paul is also pastoring this church body. And in that situation, you had uh, people called the Judaizers. Now, these were people who were coming into the church and they were in agreement that Jesus is the Messiah. But they also were saying that in order to be saved, you had to become circumcised and obey the law. So these were people who were saying salvation comes through Christ plus obedience to the law. Now in that situation, Paul pastors the people very differently than we see him pastor them here in Romans chapter 14. He pronounces a curse on that teaching. Indisputable. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. Okay? That's what's happening here. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a case of incest inside the church. We read, a man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. 
How does Paul enter into that and pastor the situation? We read from the text that not only is a man involved in sin, but apparently there's other people who are proud of it. So there's other people who are thinking that that man actually has the liberty, the Christian liberty to participate in that wickedness. Disputable matter? No. Paul says, should you not have cast him out of your fellowship? Not disputable. Paul goes on in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians 6, and he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If I were to summarize that, I might say that anyone who is at peace with their sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be at peace with your sin and be at peace with God. If you are at peace with your sin, you are at war with God. And if you are at peace with God, you must be at war with your sin. It's a good time probably to remind you so that I don't confuse anyone here about repentance. Once again, repentance doesn't mean that you no longer sin. Repentance means that you are no longer at peace with your sin. Hate what is evil. Hate what is evil. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Cling to what is good. Hate what is evil even in your own life first. Cling to what is good. So, back to COVID-19. This season of conflict Can you think of any disputable matters <laughs> in the past 18 months? I can think of a couple. Truth with love, huh? Truth with love. Let's be bold enough to name things, okay? Let's name a couple of disputable matters. Masks? Fo- Masks, vaccines, voting, voting? law, what did you say? Voting laws. laws. Worshiping together. together. Wow. What was that? Election? Election? Yeah, the election. Absolutely. Lots of disputable matters have hit us in the last 18 months. Issues that divide us. Masks. Who'd have thought? Right? See if I can summarize a couple of these issues. Let's name masks and vaccines. Two very difficult things. Masks. 
So there are some people within our, within our community who believe that we ought to be wearing masks when we gather for worship. And they have strong opinions and personal convictions that that is the right thing to do. Why? Because their strong opinions and personal convictions say that that is the best possible way to love God, love neighbor, and love one another. They also believe that it is wise because we are receiving counsel from medical people and government agencies who are saying that this is the best thing that we can do for one another. They also believe that wearing the mask is the best possible way to be a Christ-like witness to the world around us. There are others of us who have strong opinions and personal convictions that we ought not to be wearing masks when we gather for worship. Why? Because some of us feel strongly that we're gathered here for a reason, to sing the praises of God, to encourage one another, to build one another up. And that is very difficult to do, if not impossible, with a mask over your face. So some of us are at home right now. Some of us have left this community over this issue. Vaccines. Some of us have strong opinions and personal convictions that we should not be supporting and benefiting from a secondary marketplace for organ tissue harvested from murdered children. The basic issue here is that the vaccines that are available to us from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson have been created through the research and development of aborted children. These are issues that are dividing us, okay? So I'd like to say a word about our conscience in all of this. The first century Jews in the church that we read about here in Romans 14 had strong opinions and personal convictions over food, drink, and holy days, okay? They couldn't eat certain things, they couldn't drink certain things, and then there were certain days that needed to be regarded as more sacred than others. So their conscience did not give them liberty where God had given them liberty. They are actually the weaker brother. I'll explain that in a minute, okay? I have absolutely no intention of leaning into who is weaker in the faith with regard to masks or vaccines. <laughs> However, <laughs> if you thought I was going there. Um, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that 
the first century Jews, their conscience did not give them liberty to do what God had given them liberty to do. We, however, live in a different time. We have been preached a gospel of grace for the past 20, 30 years at least. Grace and mercy, grace and mercy. But we don't hear as much anymore about the holiness and justice of God. So we need to be careful because I think that we are more likely to believe that God has given us liberty where he has given us no such liberty. So my encouragement to you would be this. Before you become fully convinced in your own mind on these things, I encourage you to search out the scriptures. Study the word of God. Pray. Consult with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Even those who think differently than you. Invite the Holy Spirit to shape your thoughts and your conscience. And why do I caution you to do that? One simple reason. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul writes, he says, I don't find anything against myself. My conscience is clear, he says. But that does not make me innocent. I don't find anything against myself, but that does not therefore mean I am acquitted, he says. It is the Lord who judges me. Which brings us right back into Romans chapter 14, doesn't it? Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10. And every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Verse 12. Okay. So now as we continue on, I'd actually like to go a little bit more in depth into two of the six themes. Because that's all we're going to have time for today. Two of our six themes. The first one will be weak in faith. And the second will be destroying the work of God. Why did I choose these? Well, not because they are somehow more important than the other six, but um, the weak in faith specifically because this is one of the six themes that I believe is um, really easy to get wrong. Okay? Difficult to understand, and so I'd like to teach it to you. Okay, what does the word faith mean? What does that word mean? It's a very common word in our churches, in our Bibles, in the messages that we hear, faith. Well, if you're one of my brothers and sisters in my house church, you're used to hearing me say that words can have multiple meanings. But they can only mean one thing at a time. Words can have multiple meanings, but they can only mean one thing at a time. Okay? For example, if I were to use the word current in a sentence right now, I might mean something that's happening right now. Or 
I might mean the flow of water in the Grand River. It would be pretty obvious to you what the word meant based on the way I used it in a sentence. Someone said, words are stupid things. Words are stupid things. They only have meaning inside of sentences, and sentences gain their meaning inside of paragraphs, okay? You with me? So when we talk about the word faith, except the one who's weak in faith, except the one whose faith is weak, we have to understand what does the word faith mean here. Now, in the Bible, the word faith can mean one of four things, typically. One of four things. And it's really easy for us to know just enough to be dangerous to ourselves and others, if you know what I mean, when it comes to studying the Bible. See, it's, it's pretty easy for us to get into a Greek dictionary and say, okay, this is what the word faith means, got it. And now we think that we get to pick the meaning of the word faith when we read scripture. That's not how it works. That's not how language works. And you don't use language like that in your everyday life, but sometimes we apply different rules to scripture. We have to look at the context that the word is spoken in to understand the proper one of the four meanings. Okay, so the first way that the word faith is used in scripture in general is uh, a body of truth. A body of truth as in a set of religious beliefs, Christian doctrine. The second way that faith is used in scripture is trust or confidence in God. We, we typically see this used in the context when we're talking about salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Through faith. Your faith, your trust or confidence is, that, is, in, is in the grace of God. You, have tr- you trust that the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the grace of God poured out for us, you trust that that blood is sufficient to cover your sin and satisfy the wrath of God. Faith. You have faith. You have trust or confidence in the grace of God. Another way that the word faith is used in Scripture, faithfulness, as in dependability, someone who can be relied upon, a faithful walk with God, a faithful, long, constant, obedient walk. Faithful. And the last way that we see the word used in Scripture is intellectual assent. Intellectual assent as in approval or agreement. James uses it this way. So you believe there is one God. Good, he says. Even the demons believe that. He's talking about intellectual assent. You agree that there is one God. You believe that is a true thing. We've done some real harm here with this one in the last couple decades preaching the gospel. Intellectual assent is not the basis that God offers salvation, is it? A Christian will absolutely believe that it is true that Jesus has died for our sins and that his sacrifice is sufficient to cover our sins, but the Christian goes beyond that and backs that up with trust and confidence in God and their life follows in a life of faithfulness. You see how that works? Okay, so now when we get to Romans chapter 14 and we talk about except the one who's weak in faith, and I'm quoting the New American Standard Bible here, weak in faith. They put a footnote there 
It's a definite article, the, except the one who's weak in the faith. And what follows is, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're talking about ideas. And then we start rolling out food, drink, holy days. What Paul is saying is, except the one who's weak in their understanding of Christian doctrine, except the one whose theology is weak. You see how that works? He's not talking about except the one who doesn't quite have as much trust in God as you have. He's not talking about the one who who might step off the path a little more than you step off the path. He's saying except the one who doesn't yet know as they ought to know. And in this case, that was the Jewish converts to Christ. They believed that they still needed to uphold the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. The Gentile believers were under no such compulsion. That's what's going on here. Now, when you think about it in that kind of a way, it becomes pretty obvious that there's not a single person in this room who's not weak in the faith in one area or another. Right? I mean, unless you can say that you have a solid understanding of God's will as revealed in Scripture on this disputable matter and that disputable matter and that disputable matter, then you're weak in the faith in quite a few areas. I know I am. So we would do really well, I think, if we approached these disputable matters from that posture that we're the one who's weak in faith. Perhaps we don't yet understand as we ought to know. So enter in slowly and with humility. Because if you don't, you might find yourself showing contempt for your brothers and sisters. Okay, the second theme out of the six, and the last one we have time for this morning is destroying the work of God. Destroying the work of God. Romans chapter 14, verses 15 and 20. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died, we read. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. This is the most shocking statement in this passage to me. Destroying the work of God. That's the devil's work. The devil destroys the work of God, not the people of God. You mean I have the power to destroy the work of God in your life? John 10.10, it is the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says that he came that we may have life and have it to the full. We should be in the business of bringing life and cultivating life in one another. Not destroying the work of God. Oh, I imagine the devil is quite pleased when he's able to tempt us into doing his dirty work. 
Don't do the devil's dirty work. This is why I say that God wants you to be like his son more than he wants you to be right. Because you can be right and still destroy the work of God in someone's life. I'm guilty of this. I am positive that I have been right and destroyed the work of God on more than one occasion. Now, one thing I I don't want you to hear or misunderstand this morning is to think that God doesn't care what's right or doesn't care that, I should say, God cares about your right thinking, okay? Don't misunderstand that. In chapter 12 of Romans, we're told to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If God thinks that you need a new mind, what should that tell you about your mind? should tell you that your mind is jacked up. (laughs) That's what it tells me. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God cares very much that we have right thinking. His word is very concerned with teaching us both what and how to think. And our thinking shapes our conscience, okay? So don't hear, me, don't hear me that I'm trying to say that God doesn't care about right thinking. I'm merely saying that God wants us to be like his son before he wants us to be right. This is the wisdom of God. Because truth without love undermines the work of God. You see, Truth without love discredits the work of God in our life and it taints our witness about the character of God. God wants you to be like his son more than he wants you to be right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message today. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Romans chapter 14. Father, we need these things to go into us and we need them to be hidden in our hearts. Because it's one thing to know the truth and it's another thing for it to come out. Father, I ask that you would forgive us for destroying your work for the sake of being right. It's a very tempting thing to do. Father, I ask that you would help us to live out the way of Christ. Help us to truly love one another. Help us to truly bring you glory by the way that we love one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.